Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and a researcher. Santosh, I have a mm-hmm. fun case for you today. Oh, yeah. Okay. So follow me over to the Wayback Machine. We'll right. pick it up quite early in the episode today. I'm sorry, I have no time for segues. No. The first documentation of this condition, disease, okay. in the at least in the medical world, was 1735. The town of Oviedo in Asturias, Spain. Oh, okay. Had a small town physician, Gaspar Casal. I like that. Okay, okay. And he noted there were some interesting skin findings in some of the Asturian peasants. Uh, that was their official job title, peasant. <laughs> Most of them had progressed yeah. from surf. Yeah, uh, that's to okay. So we're we're in an era where uh, basically, if a monarch, because uh, this is all monarchs right now, if the monarch owns the land, they own the people that the land is on. Well, is it? I, I don't know. Yeah. Seventeen hundred is. I don't know how that's, many people are literate at this point, but yeah. it's the age it's the age of piracy, so at least some folks are. But it's it's coming noted, around. Okay, yeah. Anyway. People people hadn't had any kind of huge, you know, uh, the American style revolutions yet and talked about shedding the monarchy. Small town physician Dr. Gaspar Casal noted some interesting skin findings of Asturian peasants. Okay. Uh, he called the condition La Mal de la Rosa or the rose sickness, named for the red rash on the hands and feet. And interestingly, you know, depending on which site you look at, it may be 
may be uh, apocryphal, but supposedly this is the first described medical syndrome. Okay, okay. Uh, at least in Western history. I see. Okay. So Casal, in the 18, you know, and around this time, was operating under a humoral model of disease. So bad, to, bad humors, black bile, uh, yellow bile, uh, blood, blood, and, and phlegm. Was phlegm one of the four? Oh, well, anyway, he yeah. explains <laughs> this disease in terms of weather and diet, which we'll talk about in a bit. At least that was his hypothesis. Okay. And even today, the specific rash has a name called after him. So, uh, and, and did it favor any particular age group or was it um, perhaps more predominant in men or women? Oh, no, it could appear. It could appear in all members of a family. It could skip okay. some. It all could right. show up in their neighbors or no one in the neighborhood. Like the people in your neighborhood? They stopped having it for one reason or another like because, you know, they were doing something different or, or he was observing. That kind well, of thing. Yeah. The one thing that he noted was common was that it happened in peasants who ate mostly a diet of corn. <gasps> Gosh, how dare you besmirch corn. And Santos, you're from Iowa, so I was really wondering <laughs> if you yeah. had ever heard about this. <laughs> because I feel like a corn-fed condition would yeah. be a rather direct threat to your existence. Yeah. <laughs> like a, as a vegetarian. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if it was like as a for instance, if we never like buttered the corn, if it was just straight up corn and we didn't have anything else at all, you know, yes, I think that would probably be a problem. Uh, yeah, over time, because we'd be missing like several key nutrients. Well, I would have thought that as an infectious disease doctor, you would have asked me more about the rash. And okay. it could often be seen in the shape of a collar, now called the Casal collar or the Casal necklace. Sounds dirty, like God. a lot of medical eponyms. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but you told me it. it kind of affected everyone and, and spread around everywhere. Um, well, peasants who ate mostly a diet of corn. So who's gotcha. going to be able to afford that at the time? Is it a luxury food? Probably not if peasants are growing it. And yeah. after Casal started to write this down, other physicians began to identify the same condition throughout Southern Europe, especially in Northern Italy, where it was called, these are some of my favorites. So depending <laughs> on your historical knowledge, yeah, yeah. It may give the game away. Oh, uh, okay. but a story in leprosy was one name. Oh, or okay. Alpine scurvy, which is a good name for a punk band. Yeah, <laughs> it's fantastic, and it, it you're you're so far kind of. I feel like you're leading me in the direction of um, there was a nutritional deficiency somewhere, so I can kind of understand why they were saying scurvy to go along with like a nutritional deficiency so wait did they have any other features of scurvy so were they weak did they have brittle bones did they bleed easily any of these things well you know some of the usual things you'd expect in peasants living on 
a mostly subsistence diet, they at times could be difficult to get information from as they were a little confused or forgetful. Sure. Uh, they often would have stomach problems, but, you know, look at all the junk food they're eating. Sure. Um, really, it was just this rash. In infectious diseases, you know, when these things are kind of ongoing and everything else like that, I'd want to know if they were having any weight loss or fevers. So like if this was a chronic infection, like you mentioned leprosy. Would people suffer from this for a while or like would it kill them really quickly? It could. It, it could take them out if, uh, you know, they, they didn't have anything else going on. Um, the, the rash was present. Oh, so exanthem is, you know, what we're talking about on the on the skin. Um, was there any ananthem at all, Josh? Meaning that did this rash also affect their eyes or the inside of their mouth or their tongue? I like that you're focusing on the rash more now. Okay. Um, but an internal one was not really a problem. There were no ananthems. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and this disease had many names depending on the region it was found. Usually was associated with corn in Europe and <laughs> Francesco Frappoli, okay. a Milanese doctor, and he gave this disease a name, Volgo Pellegrin. Oh, okay. Or in Italian, it's in English to rough skin. Okay. Although I like that grain is in there. Sure, sure. <laughs> okay. Um, well, pell is skin and agra means sour. So sour skin is the common translation, but rough skin is a better one given the condition of the rash. Got it. And how good's your Italian? Can you translate Volgo Pellegrin? Um, uh, I can't really. Volgo, I mean, like, for instance, acne vulgaris, it just means you take whatever condition that you have and it's, you know, kind of very broadly spread out and extremely severe um, and vulgar, like kind of. And that brings us to its name in Italian. Okay. Pelagra. Oh, Pelagra. Okay, so... Um, and I know it's not technically infectious, but we yeah. are going to cover it as an infectious condition, so I'm going to dub this episode an honorary Around the World <laughs> in 80 Plagues. I forgot to mute you. I forgot to mute you. Oh, my ears. <laughs> That's right. We have a delayed intro just so I could catch Satosh off guard. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, first of all, very beautiful delayed intro. Now, I have to go back a little bit in my knowledge base because I remember pellagra as a vitamin deficiency, so a micronutrient deficiency. I believe it's in the vitamin B family. Um, but weirdly, Josh, well, maybe not so weird. The vitamin B deficiencies have a lot of um, overlap to them in terms of causing uh, problems with blood, problems with healing, problems with, um, I guess, neurological as well. So I, I can never fully parse out which one is which in terms of like their classical presentations. So what's, I guess, not in corn that they would have been okay with if they had had their corn? 
Oh, there's lots of corn. The okay. uh, the or, doctor. Sorry, if they had stuff other than corn, it was the it was the real thing, right? Well, the doctor house level clue is that still a thing? What's the yeah. current medical show? I can't watch them anymore. What? <laughs> and don't tell me Grey's Anatomy because no. <laughs> they would just don't. I I think there's like the resident. Sure. And, okay. Yeah. If you turn on the resident, the key clue. <laughs> I hope I'm not making that up. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, the big clue is in European countries. Sure. Uh, but before we talk about that, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit in time. Yeah. And take you to the early 1900s, uh, where okay. the first case was noted in 1902, but. Mm -hmm as soon as 1906 had become commonplace all throughout the southern United States. Uh, initially, there would have been light sensitivity leading to like a sunburn-like rash, especially around the hands and chest, or, you know, like those Elizabethan-style collars or the Casal collars. Oh, uh, gotcha, gotcha. But right. this sunburn, which, you know, there's a lot of agriculture in the south, so it doesn't doesn't seem inconsistent that there'd be some redness there, but this sunburn wouldn't heal and would slowly spread across the body, destroying your hair as it went. Oh, so you got alopecia. Like mm -hmm. you, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Next would come abdominal pain, <gasps> followed by diarrhea. Oh, God. Okay, so now the uh, gastrointestinal mucosa is suffering. And folks who had this for any length of time would then begin to develop emotional disturbance, okay. memory loss, difficulty walking, and finally full-blown dementia, followed by death. Okay. So, and, and these would be the progressive stages of, you know, you're missing this vitamin, you're missing this vitamin. So your skin would give out first your gastrointestinal mucosa, and then, you know, finally, you know, the, the functionality that you'd need to think. Um, it's kind of scary to imagine that, you know, just that little bit of, uh, you know, micronutrients, these are small, small amounts, right? And that it would eventually take away your ability to, to like, your brain to function. From 1906, you know, when it became kind of endemic, to sure. 1940, there were mm -hmm. over 3 million cases with 100,000 fatalities in these patients who were known as Pellegrines. Okay, okay. Not Peregrines. No, no, no. <laughs> That's a bird? Well, you know, you take your mnemonics where you can find them. Got and it. speaking of mnemonics, yeah. uh, you could recognize the disease through the progressive four Ds. Okay. Dermatitis, diarrhea, dementia, and death. Oh, God. Wow. Okay. That's, this is now coming all back to me. And I fully remember memorizing that mnemonic. I can't remember, Josh. What? maybe in pharmacology or was it in our gastro or like our FENGI pathology course? Do you remember? I feel like it would have been a pathology thing. Yeah. With Dr. Schneider and Santo. Oh, who wrote the BRS? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That takes That's... me back. A lot of culture or agrarian culture 
in the southern U.S., even still today, corn, major subsidized staple here in the U.S. So the modern process of making cornmeal removes most of the germ, and that has most, and you know, like farm germ, like right. not farm right. infection. Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're talking about like wheat germ, right? Thank like you. the actual, yes, yeah, yeah. So the, the, center germ meaning the um the the center the little bit in in the, the actual thing that we eat yeah anyway in the early 1900s i think around 1902 the bale degerminator was invented that made grinding corn far more effective and efficient okay. which is great but i just told you the germ has most of the vitamins right prior to this the way to make corn was a process developed by Central and South American cultures called mm. nixtamalization, where corn kernels are soaked in lime water and then mashed up into a paste to make tortillas, tamales, you know, any kind of flour-based dish. Okay, gotcha. Submersion in a basic material, you know, that's like extra. Sure, uh, sure. <laughs> okay. Not only makes these kernels easier to mash, but it makes the niacin bioavailable. It's locked up in corn oh. in a form that we can't access. Because we can't digest it. Right. But if Got you it. soak it in a alkalinized solution. Okay. Okay. You know, this was biohacking before biohacking. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Because it was, um, it, it is acidic. I think, right, nicotinic acid, is that right? European conquistadors took corn back with them to Europe, okay. transplanted it into other territories, but they didn't take that nixtamalization process because they weren't stopping to ask how the cultures were preparing their food. So instead, they'd grind it into cornmeal and treating it just like wheat. Okay, gotcha. All right. And then it made it to the south where we made it even more efficient at removing the little bit of germ. Okay. So... How did we figure this out? There was a privately funded report in 1912 called the Thompson-McFadden Report. Okay. It was the most reliable of all scientific experiments, the survey, the self-reported survey. Okay, okay. Oh, I see, I see. So this is this would be one of those where, you know, you have a series of questions pertaining to like, for instance, what time do you wake up every day? How much do you eat? Like this kind of a thing. But it, the accuracy of it would be just based on, you know, however honest and um, that the particular person was with the... Uh, Pardon me, sir. Have you had cholera, typhus, pellagra? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. And what income class would you say you're in? Yeah. Filthy, Got stinking, it. rich? Stinking and filthy? <laughs> or middle class. Mm -hmm. okay. All right. Your okay. tax dollars at work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much what this McFadden report found is that it occurred far more commonly in neighborhoods with poor or absent sewage, okay. bad sanitation, crowding, and the best predictor of whether someone would get pellagra was whether their neighbors had it, which is, of course, a classic trait of an infectious disease. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. It, that it was being propagated around, but yeah. that would have been kind of a, it, I, I think we, we had the same idea when we were talking about scurvy. It was a case of mistaken identity. 
so it was funded by oh let's this probably isn't important but uh thompson and mcfadden were the two rich cotton businessmen it was named after okay who were backed directly by congress so you're probably thinking well clearly they're biased because cotton is involved sure well these researchers went to six company towns in the spartanburg south carolina area okay okay they visited every house took detailed demographic histories and they did i love this phrase housewife recalls <laughs> meaning, i'm sorry sir we have to recall your wife <laughs> meaning not that she had defective parts meaning that they called them back to follow up with more questions is what you're saying dietary surveys yeah. asking about the consumption of cornmeal wheat flour meat cured meat lard you know yeah. your regular groceries right. then they looked at the pellagra status of everyone in the household Okay. which was defined as simply having a stereotypical skin le skin lesion uh -huh. or being treated by a doctor for pellagra. Okay, okay. Little broad in terms of, but, you know, in sensitivity, you'll catch almost everybody under those requirements. Sure, sure. Uh, and comparing it to, say, something like beriberi or scurvy, they rejected a nutritional cause because the disease was never found in nursing infants and it showed that it was far more common in the white citizens of these towns than the black. Uh, oh, oh, now oh, in, oh, yep. That's now <laughs> in the South. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I love that second explanation. It can't possibly be infectious because the clean rich people are getting it. <laughs> it was naturally yeah. assumed okay. that... If it was a dietary disease, it would affect the black community. Right. As clearly, yes. that diet would be worse. What was the diet? Didn't matter. It would be yeah. worse. Sorry, not uh, infectious, but that makes a ton, a ton of sense. We had the same conversation, Josh, with gout, I think, that it was very odd that it should be linked to diet because it was affecting primarily the rich. You ever notice how when a disease is affecting white people, that's when, it's, you know, this is weird. <laughs> that is so strange. As opposed to like people of color is like all their left hands seem to be dropping off. Oh, they do that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the commission decided they would test the infectious hypothesis. Sure. They sure. divided all the houses in the towns into three zones. Okay. Zone one was infected with pellagra, zone two was adjacent, and zone three wasn't. Okay. Uh, and when they looked at the data, they saw an inverse relationship. The further you got from affected households, the less likely you were to have it. Okay. And between towns, having an improved sanitation system was protective against the disease. I Based on to, this... Well, I, I want to recall our friend and one of your favorite people in history... No, no, not Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist, but rather uh, Mr. John Snow, who did the same type of uh, kind of uh, tracing when he was looking for that pump in London where he saw the most, uh, you know, incidents of, of cholera kind of radiating out like spokes of a wheel from that one uh, place where people would get water now yeah. let's bring in our our protagonist for the okay. episode yes. uh 
red-haired Dr. Goldberger. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Fiery of spirit. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> Did not think. Yeah. This was an infectious disease. Oh, he he's rejecting the uh, the otherwise uh, common wisdom. His biggest clue came from personal evidence visiting thousands of cases in institutions like orphanages and insane asylums, which had hundreds of cases among the wards, but okay. zero among the doctors and nurses on staff, even though staff was in constant contact with the victims. Okay. That doesn't sound like an infectious disease when healthcare staff are immune from catching it, no matter how invincible we may think ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, if it's infectious, you more than likely, especially, I'm guessing this is before any kind of personal protective equipment, right? So you should more often than not see the those folks that you're talking about get more sick, you know. So he noted it was lots of them among the among the patients, none among the staff. Right. And then said, "Okay, well what changes between these two? Well, a monotonous diet." Okay, okay. At that time, most poor southerners got the majority of their calories from just three foods, known as the 3 Ms. It's going to be a lot of mnemonics in this episode. Oh. <laughs> I like it. I like it. The M's were ground meal, especially cornmeal, molasses for syrup, uh -huh. and meat, a, a dried type of pork called fatback. Sounds super appetizing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> fatback, uh, it, uh, it's literally fatback, just like, you know, you would imagine. It's where you take the, you know, that thick band of fat that you're going to get off of an animal. So and, the Goldberger suspected yeah. Goldberger suspected that these 3Ms lacked were a little monotonous, huh? <laughs> and lacked the some essential nutrient. So, he set out to prove this in the delightfully unethical way that all doctors could before the 1900s okay. or even into the 1900s apparently. All right. Uh this is happier in the beginning. Don't worry. It doesn't take it doesn't get dark till later. Okay. He selected he selected a couple orphanages that had high rates and he started feeding people there a varied diet that had fresh food, eggs, milk, peas, oatmeal, and then watched as everyone improved. Rates of pellagra plummeted. Okay. Uh, in fact, some of the inmates at the insane asylums improved so much that they were deemed sane and discharged. Oh, oh, so their mental disease, what at the time was thought of as a psychiatric disease, was actually uh, kind of based in their nutrition rather than any kind of, got it, got it, got it. Okay. So because this worked so well at the orphanage and the insane asylum, Dr. Goldberger approached the governor of Mississippi and mm -hmm. asked for access to a prison, okay. one that had no one that had no pellagra reported cases. So he's okay. like, hey, do you have a prison where none of these guys have this? And they found one near Jackson. He then took a dozen inmates in clean cells, sterilized cells, okay. 
and offered to feed them a typical southern diet to see whether they developed pellagra. In exchange, the men would get pardons when the experiment ended. Oh, okay. Very nice. All right. After hearing Goldberger's pitch, the governor said, yeah, sure. I think uh, that can work. And the prisoners were thrilled. You know, imagine going from whatever typical prison food was at the time. Uh But they had clean cells to themselves and got all the biscuits, gravy, grits, and syrup they could eat. Okay. Three months later, they were weak, pale, drooping. Um, By November, six had full-blown pellagra and could barely walk, all bedridden. Uh, One moaned, I've been through a thousand hells. Another asked to be shot. Ooh, okay. After seven months, the experiment had to end. Uh, Each man got his pardon, plus $5 and a new suit. (laughs) That actually is probably much more important than we imagined. Were you wondering about the criminals? Well, there were two white-collar business associates of some politician Okay. There was uh, two murderers who were thrilled to get a pardon just to, you know, eat a delightful meal. Okay. And then the remaining were, well, their crimes were unspecified. Goldberger had figured it out. He had managed to not only cure the disease by changing the diet, but also okay. induce the disease by making those same controlled changes. At this point, you couldn't possibly argue with proof staring you right in the face sure. that this is a nutritional disease, Are, right? I, well, <laughs> I, I'm a little hesitant right now, Josh, because you're going to turn around. <laughs> okay, T- tell me how in heaven's name it, this was, you know, uh, refuted. And please, please, please... <laughs> Tell me that this was at least some sort of rationale and not just like some kook who had some amount of power. Oh, (laughs) some kook? Do you mean, well, the entire South? Because, listen, Goldberger, with your your New York City-born Yankee name. (laughs) Okay. You are going to come down yeah. from your fancy high tower. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. And tell the South that, hey, your base diet, as well as your entire economic system, uh-huh. is sickening you. literally oh no i know the civil war like ended what at least five maybe ten years ago but (laughs) but listen everything you guys do wrong (laughs) and and i'm guessing this is further you know kind of heaping shame on the loss of the confederacy of like you know, just, okay, not only, you know, your lifestyle in terms of how you guys make money and your economy and how you live, but also then, like, paring it down even further, like what you eat. So <laughs> oh, after listening to a physician, politician, electrician, yeah, <laughs> jazz musician. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> there were no- Jazz musicians were not 
helping the discover, <laughs> discover Palabra. Stop it. <laughs> well, hey, uh, pardon yeah. me, sir. Uh-huh. Before you sound so sure about that. Oh, no. <laughs> prisoners across the South were aware of Dr. Joe Goldberger's experiments okay. and the controversy they had caused. And they understood that the diet being served in prisons in the, throughout the South was making them sick. And okay. so there was a whole prison call and response song that grew out of this. I don't want no cornbread, meat and black molasses. That would become a blues song. So, okay. So, smarty pants. So, okay, blues musicians. Yeah. Blues musicians. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just just to spite you, (laughs) if you look in the show notes, listening audience, (laughs) you'll find a link to YouTube. (laughs) I, listening audience, I am so, so sorry. Uh, Because I bring my receipts. (laughs) Yeah. We call them sources, Josh. Yeah, you brought your sources. (laughs) So after listening to all of these folks uh, tell him, sorry, young ears, eat shit. Yeah. (laughs) Doc, you know what Dr. Joseph Goldberger did? Uh, Yeah. He said, okay. What? (laughs) Okay, what? No, no. Let's talk about something... Was he endorsing corporophagia? What happened here? Let's talk about a little something called a filth party. Oh, okay. I don't know that I want to, but you're going to make me, aren't you? Well, you know, this wasn't in a big grand event hall or the airport Hilton. It was in medical clinics, just a handful of guests, including his wife, and no music. So, you know, your blues musicians weren't around yet. Okay, okay, gotcha. And the appetizers, well, that's part of what made this such a fun filth party. Because before each meeting, while working at the clinic, Mm -hmm. he would do the same things that you do in a day, Santosh. Take scrapings of patients' skin scabs, as well as stool and urine samples. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I'm guessing this is a little bit before, you know, proper modern ethics. So I'm guessing no consent forms or anything like that. (laughs) I mean, this is just, he had to take these to do lab tests on. This is part of his doctor profession. Okay. Uh, And he would then take these stool and scab and urine samples. And are you ready? Are Uh you ready? He would mix it with flour or cracker crumbs, forming small doughy pills and biscuits. Oh, Uh, okay. Right? Delightful. Then one by one, every party guest would swallow one. Would (laughs) swallow This is like people getting together to like try ecstasy or something. Okay. Yes, if by ecstasy you mean a small dough ball yeah. uh, stuffed with somebody's scab, urine, or stool. Oh, boy. So all those folks telling him eat shit, he said, all right, if that's what it will take, that's what I'll do. Because if he could prove that Pelagra was not caused by germs and therefore not contagious... Yes, uh-huh. But he knew one of these parties wouldn't be enough. I mean, it's good shock value, but... <laughs> that's... that's but this was, this was yeah. for science. Yeah. So, 1916, uh-huh. he hosted eight parties with a total of 17 different guests. Nowadays, okay. this would be a reality show. <laughs> that's true. That's true. It wouldn't even be a full show. It would be like an episode segment. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, most of these guests were fellow doctors, and it also included his wife. Okay. Uh, and the guests would then receive injections, nasal swabs, or as I said, delicious tablets of waste. Right. And while lots of folks did get sick, uh, you know, they did have some diarrhea or just local reactions at the site of injections, not a single person after two months of parties got pellagra. Oh, okay. So, so he he, it off. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't know that there's a ton of niacin in poop. Maybe there is. Well, no, no, the know. point is, yeah. is that we had our last filth party this noon. If anyone can get pellagra this way, you know, parentheses, the infectious way, we must right. certainly have it good and hard. This is the last time we feasted on filth. Never again. Okay. So he's trying to okay. prove that, you know, he's trying to say it's due to a nutrition thing. Right. Not right, that right. there's a nutrition addition in poop. Okay. Okay. But that there is a lack of something or if it's infectious, then and he's eating infectious fluids from right. patients with it he uh-huh. should be getting it and none of them did okay all right so clearly he's like all right i've done what you asked do you will you believe me now sure yes absolutely uh no no they didn't <laughs> they refused to accept his data oh and and members of the Thompson McFadden Commission, those two cotton-owning gentlemen in particular, yes. pointed out that Goldberger's experiments only worked because you had to have a weakened constitution for the infection to take to take hold. The prisoners had gotten well, sick because yeah. the southern diet he insisted on feeding them had weakened their constitutions. Goldberger well, and company were young, healthy physicians. I mean, of course they're not going to get it. And hey... Look at our funded study. The people who had this, the people who were the sickest were younger, poor uh, women. How do you explain that? Huh? Huh? <laughs> huh? I, yeah, I guess I stand corrected. <laughs> so Goldberger. Yeah. Did he lay down and take this? No. No, he didn't. He said, <laughs> all right. All right, Thomas McFadden. <laughs> he, he sounds right now. Okay, so we have we've covered a few of these very passionate, brilliant people in the past. They have not all had good outcomes, Josh. So I'm reminded a little bit of Ignaz Samoweis, who was the doctor in the OBGYN, the labor and delivery wards, who was trying to get everybody to friggin' wash their hands. And everybody was saying, no, you crazy person. And eventually he went crazy. I'm hoping, I'm praying that, you know, we, we don't send this guy to the loony bin because he's, he's on the right track. Well, Goldberger didn't take this as defeat. He said, all right, eating filth wasn't enough to prove it to you, showing you literal evidence of causing and fixing it wasn't enough right you're all saying the thomas mcfadden trial is still your standard fine i'm gonna replicate their trial but better with blackjack and hookers actually forget the study in blackjack no 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 he's okay he went back down to the same spartanburg area okay replicated their methodology 
used similar villages, but made three major changes. He instituted first a strict definition for pellagra. It had to have a detailed physical examination with, again, that rash on the hands and neck and upper chest, the castle collar, uh, at a bare minimum. It wasn't enough just to have diarrhea. It wasn't enough just to have dementia. You had to have the physical exam. And it had to be verified by Goldberger himself or one of his colleagues. So examination by non-experts or just casually looking at a doctor's note wouldn't cut it. Got it. Okay. So he's, he's trying to have good regularity in terms of, uh, yeah. Okay. I get it. I get it. And uh, finally, they didn't rely only on so-called housewife surveys, but a Santosh. Mm -hmm. They got the receipts. They got (laughs) not not the metaphorical receipts, the literal receipts from the from the company store. So so they knew exactly what their subjects were eating, itemized. Okay, okay. Because before widespread automobile travel around 1916. These people only had one place to buy their groceries. So you just go to the grocer and you know exactly how much of your three M's were purchased. Okay. All right. So not showing directly still that they actually ate the food, but at least that the food was purchased. And all of a sudden he began to see, yeah, the ones who are eating more of this diet are the ones getting sicker. And, you know, there'd be women would have less meat. And more cornmeal and molasses, as would children. Right. So right. they would be the ones. Whereas when everyone had a meat but still didn't have niacin, they would all get it. And that's why it was in the poor area. They had confused a correlation for a causation. Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, now, Goldberg, did they accept this as he <laughs> showed them up? <laughs> oh, come on, Josh. Please, yes, yes. No. Okay. But, so Goldberger said, you know what? Mm. To hell with all of you. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can just sod off, whatever. And he <laughs> turned to laboratory work and said, but I'm going to prove this thing if it kills me. Oh, and oh, went God. hunting for the nutrient missing from the diet of pellagra victims. And although he didn't find that, he did learn that just a couple cents worth of brewer's yeast, something every local agrarian household would likely have. Right. Okay. Could eliminate the disease and yeast helped to stop an outbreak of pellagra along the Mississippi river after a flood devastated food crops in 1927. Okay, all right. At which point I can only imagine him doing a mic drop as he runs in with a cure to this condition that they still think is infectious. Yeah. And says, uh, this will okay. work, but, <laughs> you know, it's if it works, it means you have to accept on some level. And they took the package and mumbled, damn Yankees. <laughs> um, so... I this is something I don't know if you were going to uh, highlight this part of it, Josh. But this is I, I think this is a useful tangent. This is why it is super important to have 
good ethical practices in research. I think that he, uh, you know, our man had every good intention at this point, right? But if he didn't approach this from the standpoint of let's work together in order to investigate what's going on, you know, he was being what paternalistic, right? And this kind of a thing. This is why all the good in the world that you're trying to do, and then the people who you're attempting to benefit and stuff are going to look at you like you're, you know, paternalistic and telling them what to do. And so it's not going to stick until you have to like bend over backwards. I'm not saying it would have happened super quick, Josh, but probably if he had been a little bit more, you know, hey, let's work together. Let's talk about this. You know, it, it there's a chance that they might have accepted his hypothesis and his evidence a lot sooner. Well, Santosh, he died. <laughs> he Which died shortly after and this? his wife, he died never finding out what the specific uh, molecule that he was looking for was, although he suspected it was a vitamin. Okay, and then right. his wife had to fend off for years accusations that her husband had died of pellagra that he had secretly caught. Okay. Uh, and of course he would hide it because he kept insisting it wasn't infectious. So, <laughs> you okay. know. Yeah. <laughs> stuff that could never happen today. <laughs> um, See, this makes me feel so worried because I don't know right now, you and me sitting here, which of these things, like the diseases that we're speculating about, you know, as we hang out here, we're going to find out, you know, in a hundred years or 200 years where they were like, ha ha, so-and-so is telling you guys. <laughs> well, you know, oh. he, he died and uh, they began research into vitamins had been ongoing throughout this life, but it wasn't until 1937 that okay. they, a biochemist in Wisconsin finally found the vitamin responsible for pellagra okay. called now called niacin or vitamin B3. But at the time it was called vitamin G in honor of Dr. Joseph Goldberger. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so what is niacin? Well, it's been a while since medical biochemistry. <laughs> yeah. but the important things that you would need to know about it are it, it synthesizes your body has to synthesize it in order to put energy into almost every bodily process yeah. so it's pretty important you might even say it's a vital amine <laughs> so it's a cofactor right Essentially, so we, we've got all of these enzymatic events going on in our cells all the time. Josh, uh, you remember, uh, you know, our, our old ATP, right? ATP construction. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, you have energy metabolism and you also... Uh, you know, you're talking about making uh, nucleic acids to to some degree. Look, um, we're not going to get into the deep dive on this. No, no, it's, no. But it's responsible it, for NAD yeah. and NADP. Yeah. And those give you <laughs> lots of energy. It, so ultimately, we're talking about ATP, which is our fuel for ourselves. Now, it makes a ton of sense 
the order in which we start to lose our function, okay, when B3 is depleted, our skin cells turn over very quickly. You know, that we have to replicate our skin cells almost constantly. And if you know, you're, you're lacking the energy, that cofactor, vitamin B3, in order to make those new cells and have them survive, they're going to die off. Next most important that we constantly replenish is our GI tract, okay, because those cells are constantly being worn out, have to be replaced. Um, and then finally, yeah, our, our beautiful neurons using all that energy to help us think. And so you go crazy and, you know, you lose your mind and, and then you die. So that order makes a ton of sense. Coincidentally, Josh, you know, when you get damaged cells and stuff, the ones that start to die first and fastest, and then you go, same thing with radiation poisoning. So it all makes sense. As you've noted, some of the major symptoms of niacin deficiency are this rash that can appear anywhere but frequently appears around the neck or upper chest, a bright red tongue, Sorry. Along with vomiting, Sorry. <laughs> fatigue from all that vomiting and loss of electrolytes, headache mm -hmm. from the same, memory loss, uh, and then as it does reach your neurons, and from all this vomiting and diarrhea, probably a loss of appetite as well. That said, this rarely is seen in Western countries. Uh, people who are malnourished would have it, so it could be folks in late or unstated treated un bleh. so it could be folks in late or untreated stages of HIV or AIDS, mm -hmm, liver mm -hmm. failure for any reason, alcohol and drug abuse, or even just folks who are living in poverty are at risk for malnourishment because so many things are corn products and so much of corn is still made in some of this processed way. So it mostly occurs in these at-risk populations which unfortunately are very often the same populations with people of color. Yes. Uh, yeah, especially in today's day and age, wasn't always true. But yeah, you're, you're going to find that crossover many, many times here in the United States when we're talking about low socioeconomic status and race. How much do you actually need? Well, you can obtain it from lots of foods, mostly meats, like there's a small amount in tryptophan that. Mm -hmm is in most meat products, not just turkey, okay. but, you know, and that would be tuna. Chicken breast is a great one. So winner, winner, chicken dinner, great source of niacin and lean protein. Sure, sure. Uh, but for those of you who are vegetarian or millennials, uh, mm -hmm. avocado toast will take care of all your needs <laughs> because avocado has it. Uh-huh. Peanuts have it, so if you have some peanut butter on that toast as well. Uh, but hey, you know what? Even the toast itself, as long as it's whole wheat, because whole wheat bread, whole wheat pasta are also high in niacin. Yeah, and, and it's the wheat that gives up the niacin from the processing, right? The same way it breaks down the sugars and that kind of a thing. But we, Josh, today in this day and age, because we don't want people suffering from these micronutrient deficiencies, a lot of the times these foods will be enriched, meaning these nutrients will also be added in the processing to make the particular food. So cereals, bread, that kind of thing. A single can of tuna, for those of you who eat fish but not meat, uh, one five-ounce can 
has 21.9 milligrams of niacin. Let's talk about the recommended daily value, not about how it was established, just what it is. This disease is most commonly in the developing world likely to occur in infants who are going to be malnourished. For a 7 to 12 month old infant, a mere 4 milligrams a day is enough. Remember, a single can of tuna has 21 milligrams. That is too much for an infant, but <laughs> very easy to do. Uh, children up to 13 years old would get up to 12 milligrams a day. That's still this same one can of tuna. Men only need 16 milligrams a day, and pregnant women clock in the highest at 18. So All this... of those can be met with very small amounts of these. Now, again, we use tuna as an example. If we're looking at something that you're more likely to eat, Santosh, we can go back to, you want peanuts or avocados? Uh, I, I'm an avocado fan. All right. One medium avocado. You're going to have to have a few more. 3.5 milligrams of niacin. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's quite a bit. <laughs> but remember, you only need 16. So five avocados and you're set. Okay, gotcha. Five avocados. <laughs> Is that all I need? <laughs> okay, okay. Or or if you put some peanut butter on top of that avocado, you're okay. getting another four milligrams of niacin just from a tablespoon's worth of peanut butter. Sure, sure. Your whole wheat products have about 15% of the recommended daily al allowance. Okay. So it doesn't take a lot in your diet to obtain this and avoid it, which is why we don't really see this condition much today. But it is something to watch out for, especially in some of those at-risk populations we described before. Yes. Yeah, and, and those of us who have worked abroad we have definitely seen it, uh, along with the other micronutrient deficiencies we've talked about, Josh. So especially in war-torn areas, uh, places where not just that they're not eating the right foods, but maybe not eating at all, especially children, um, you know, seeing not just B3 deficiency, which, uh, you know, but multiple vitamin B complex deficiency, vitamin D deficiency. But you're right. Thankfully, if you're in an industrialized country, even if you're relatively poor, because of the enrichment that we do with food nowadays, we don't find as much of these uh, deficiencies as we used to. And you can thank Dr. Goldberger, the most vindictive hero I've ever known. <laughs> It's like, I'm going to prove this, and I'm going to rub it into your faces from every possible angle. <laughs> he was working so hard. I mean, I, so that's the problem, right? Is there, we, we sometimes get caught up with, uh, you know, do I want to prove this versus do I want to, you know, kind of benefit, you know, mankind or people or whatever it is. So that's the time, you know, where this can get away from you. Uh, and <laughs> I'm so sorry that he suffered like that. That really, really sucks. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that eventually he was able to prove his discovery. He was like a Marvel supervillain. Like, I just yeah. imagine him off in his lab where he yeah. ended his days <laughs> in his lab, horribly disfigured in my imagination, sure. going, I'll show you, yeah. I'll show you all. <laughs> 
I'll find the molecule and then you'll see. The yeah. whole world will see. <laughs> <laughs> so our hat's off to you, Dr. Goldberger. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He was he I, I he he was benefiting humankind, absolutely, but going about it in a way where uh definitely there was some um you know, a, a little bit more I care about being right more so than helping people. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. What do I have to do to make you love me? Just <laughs> name it. Uh, So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santos and Friends. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Uh, You know what? Just for the heck of it, I'm going to throw in a quick just the tip, Santos. It's been a while. Oh, yes, And now people are traveling again. Yes. Since we talked about corn, no, no, don't get your hopes up. We're not going to Iowa. Oh, Josh. (laughs) But Belize in Central America, uh, the national language English, for those of you concerned about your facility with bilingualism, Mm -hmm. offers in addition to ruins and outdoor activities such as horseback riding and things and mountain hiking uh, you can grind your own corn see this nixtilization process and make your own flour tortillas and tamales which let me tell you once you've made one or two of your own if you're expecting me to say it's a deeply satisfying feeling or some other hippie tomfoolery <laughs> let me tell you it makes me very glad I can go down and get a cheap mass-produced one <laughs> at almost any street corner. <laughs> because, boy, oh boy, is that a lot of work. I'm glad that someone else is doing it. But yeah. Belize, gorgeous country, and you can actually still take part as part of these uh, natural or indigenous community tours, uh, okay. learning how they make the food traditionally and seeing what this process was that prevented them from getting alpine scurvy. <laughs> so I still I love that uh, the 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 um I love the term alpine scurvy. Asturian leprosy is my personal favorite because <laughs> it sounds like it belongs in Middle Earth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, Asturia does have such a beautiful ring to it. You're right. It sounds very Tolkien-esque. Like Legolas suffers from Asturian leprosy. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But we'll save our tangents for the next episode. That's it. As always, until next time, wash your hands, get your shot, wear a mask, cover your cough, find a country that will allow you in having done some combination of all those things. And when you've done all that, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.